0: Good morning. It's, it's good to see all of you here and um, there are many many new faces um, and that's wonderful also. This morning the reading will be from Ecclesiastes 3. I'll read from verse 1 through 15. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heavens. Under heavens, sorry. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. May the Lord add blessing to this word and give us wisdom.
1: Father, we thank you so much for every heavenly blessing we have received in Christ Jesus. I pray this morning that that sure hope, that anchor for the soul, would give us peace, hope, and joy here and now. May we honor you, glorify you by enjoying you this morning. Lord, those who have need, those who are struggling right now, Lord, I pray that you would give them peace that you are their provider. And Lord, I ask that you would give us open communication as a church and the love to care for one another appropriately, that you would give us the opportunity to be your hands and feet in caring for one another, recognizing that only you can truly supply what it is we need. May we find our satisfaction in you. Lord, I pray for those who are leaving us, those who couldn't be here this morning on this hot summer weekend Lord and and those who are new with us I pray that you would help us to each find fellowship in you through your church and that we would love one another as you have loved us that we would love the church that exists not the church that is in our imagination or our ideals but that those who you have loved would be loved by us as well Lord, we pray for the children in their class, the ones who couldn't sit through a longer sermon. Lord, I pray that you would help them to hear the gospel and that your spirit would quicken it within them. And because only you can make a Christian, Lord, we ask that you would save them, help us to steward everything that you've given us well. And Lord, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would give us understanding and wisdom that can come only from you. Holy Spirit, be our only teacher this morning I pray. Amen. Beautiful. Everything is fleeting. <laughs> so far, Ecclesiastes has taught us that everything in this cursed world is hevel, that is vapor or mist. And so unless there is some eternal meaning to our activity here, some purpose beyond this hevel world, then all of our actions in this life are futile. we do do things that don't matter, and then we die. If we live for the things of this world then, nothing you look to for meaning and nothing you turn to to distract yourselves from the, meaning, the resulting meaningless will work. Pleasure will not satisfy our longings, neither will wisdom or work or more money or any of the things we expend so much energy chasing So perhaps you found Ecclesiastes to be a bit of a downer up to this point. And here now we come to one of the high points in the book, a beautiful poem, now popularized by Pete Seeger and the Birds. All but six words of their hit song, Turn, 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 come directly from this biblical text. And and the catchy tune has a comforting vibe. It kind of feels like, you know, it doesn't matter how bad things get, good times are coming. Life ebbs and flows. If you're in a bad season now, then good times are just around the corner. Unfortunately, this fails to accurately communicate the mood or intention of Ecclesiastes 3. The beauty of the poem can obscure its bleak message. I, I tricked you. It's not, it's not a high point. It's more Ecclesiastes. It's this bleak message, which is made clear in the question of the following verse nine, "What gain has a worker from his toil?" And the statement of verse ten, "I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with." You see, this echoes back to chapters one, uh, or chapter one in verse three, and then in verse thirteen b, it says, "What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun?" And then it proceeds to answer, "Nothing, hevel." vapor, mist. And then 13 says, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. See how these two statements echo right back to chapter one. So Ecclesiastes is still considering the issue of what permanent gain or lasting profit people achieve from all their toil. Because it is an unhappy or bad business that God has given humanity over to when he cursed the earth. This is actually the same word used in the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or good and bad. This same word that's translated unhappy in our ESV is just bad. It's anything that's destructive. It's, it's evil, but it's not moral. evil. It's just bad stuff. And so this is a bad business that God has given humanity over to because he cursed the earth after the, the fall when Adam and Eve sinned. And so from then on, time does not comfort. Time haunts because it is fleeting and filled with sorrow that cancels out joy. And time is not your friend. If you are young, time can be interminably slow. But as soon as, you, like me, you start getting older and older, each year passes more quickly than the last. And like watching sand run through the hourglass, you watch your life slowly run out. And so the purpose of Ecclesiastes all the way through is to expose the foolish meaningless of a, meaninglessness sorry, of a life lived for anything other than our created purpose. Which is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And this is something we begin to do now, as we'll see in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes isn't all doom and gloom, it actually has a wonderful hope in it. But, but this book dashes our illusions in order to push us to enjoy God and his gifts, not just in eternity, but in the here and now, in this life. The only true satisfaction is in God and in his gifts, and this is the only meaningful life available. And so the time poem in Ecclesiastes three is another example to prove the thesis that without Jesus, life under heaven is futile and fleeting. It begins verse one, For everything, there is a season and an appointed time under heaven. And so the entire text this morning, chapter 3, verse 115, is unified by its attention to the sovereignty of God in determining events. And so there's all these opposite pairings uh, painting a complete picture of reality and life on earth, the, the full range of human and natural experiences. And the 28 statements... Are then clustered together to form seven pairs of pairs which is also uh, symbolizing completeness to the original audience so I'm gonna explain this a little bit and then we'll read verses 1 to 8 and so those who are on PowerPoint sorry we're jumping around a little bit Uh, verse 2 the first two pairs encompass the entire life cycle first of humans and animals a time to be born and a time to die and then of vegetation a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted and then the second pair of pairs verse three relate around the around destruction and restoration the, the third verse four centers on grief and joy the fourth is the trickiest to interpret verse five uh, because ca- casting stones and embracing what is, how are those related to everything else is in a section related this one uh, ancient rabbinic commentaries on this verse equate scattering of stones with sexual intercourse and gathering stones with abstinence and so then this is consistent with the second pair Uh, there's alternative interpretations but honestly nothing is gained or lost when we just aren't quite sure what the connection is between casting stones and embracing the point of the poem as I said is to include all points of existence in time so it's it's A reference to everything that happens in life. A time for each of these things and a a time to not do each of these things or when they're not happening. Uh, The fifth pair, verse 6, a pair of pairs, centers around gaining and losing. Uh, The sixth, in verse 7, around opening and closing. First, fabric and then our mouths. And then the final pair of opposing pairs, verse 8, are about harmony and discord. A time... To love and a time to hate, time for war and a time for peace. And so it's important that we understand that the scripture does not advocate these emotions or actions, but simply describes them as parts of the full spectrum of human experience or actions. It's not as though I can hate my neighbor and then claim that the Bible teaches that there's an appropriate time to hate and to kill. So this list describes all the things that people might do as well as what happens to them not what they should do and not that every individual will necessarily experience every activity. And while there are difficulties understanding every precise detail of the activities mentioned, uh, that isn't even the point. All the elements are to be taken together as an overall description of life. At any given time, humans in general find themselves somewhere between the poles of the activities represented by all of these opposing pairs so let's just read verses one to eight again for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven a time to be born and a time to die a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted a time to kill and a time to heal a time to break down and a time to build up a time to weep and a time to laugh a time to mourn and a time to dance a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together insists that God has ordained an appropriate time for every human activity, and so teaches us that the wisest course is to be alert to the times and to cooperate with what God has ordained in order to make the most of the opportunities. So God's in control, and and a wise person recognizes this, and what God sets into an order, it's only wisdom to do things in that proper order. Uh, it's there's a really 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 wrong time to sow your crop any farmer can tell you where it will produce nothing there's really really wrong times for all of these things because it's not in the order of God and then when God has spoken especially wisdom is to behave as though the one who sets reality has spoken and then to live as though reality is, is as it is And so we saw that with Joseph as we went through Genesis. He's so wise. Well, what did he do? God told him that there was going to be seven years of lots of food and seven years of no food. And wow, he came up with this amazing, amazing plan that nobody else would have come up with. Let's save up some of the food from the seven years so we have food. No, it's just wisdom is living as though what God has said is true. And what God has ordered is true. And so uh, make hay when the sun shines is our common adage. Taken from Proverbs ten five, he who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. And so our God of order has established a flow and regularity to the universe that is far beyond any human control. And so the wise person lives life in the light of this massive truth. There are numerous wisdom sayings devoted to activity at the appropriate time in scripture, and especially the practice of discerning the right time and appropriate words to speak, such as Proverbs fifteen twenty three, which says to make a an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, how good it is. Or Proverbs twenty five eleven, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Now, in light of traditional wisdom, and even the majority of biblical wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes' conclusion is totally unexpected and even a parody the, the starting startling response sorry is verse 9 what gain has the worker from his toil see traditional wisdom says if you want to have gain from your toil practice wisdom do things at the right time there's an appropriate time for everything and this is how you will profit But Ecclesiastes says something quite different. It repeats the refrain of chapter 1. What gain has a worker from his toil? Uh, Essentially, the rhetorical question answers nothing. And then he says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, beautiful here also means appropriate. And so he's not saying this is a pretty time, but that it is an appropriate time. It's just perfect. It's the, the perfect time. But the bottom line is that God is the one who is in charge of all these times and appointed activities. And this sets up what will follow in verse 14. But the overarching point of our passage this morning is that God has appointed or ordained all of these things as part of his bigger hidden plan. And so, yes, it is wise Uh, Sorry, better to be wise, as it has said earlier in Ecclesiastes, working and speaking at the appropriate times. This will serve you well in this life. But the point of Ecclesiastes is that there is no lasting gain. In a world where God has imposed a curse on our toil and activities, there is no lasting profit, no advantage gained, because everything we do is nullified by God's curse on the earth and the introduction of human death which awaits us all so there's no net gain or change from all the planting building and warring it is ecclesiastes 1 13 a bad business god has given the children of man to be busy with so there may be appropriate times for certain things or maybe they just happen but regardless there is no gain for humans in this heavy world Now, verse 9 is not totally anticipated. The poem begins with birth and death, matters which we have essentially no control over. And it ends with war and peace, again, things over which ordinary people have little control over. Nobody controls their beginning. And the fact that so many Canadians today are choosing the time of their own death in euthanasia only serves to show how little control they can exert over their lives that they should grasp for it in death. Now We can certainly make our lives worse when we ignore the order of God's creation. But the point here is that we are also limited in what we can gain by recognizing it. People often look to Ecclesiastes 3 for comfort at funerals, noting that God has ordained an appropriate time to die. That may be true since the fall, but that is not how it was originally supposed to be. This is why death is still jarring, still seems so foreign, alien to us. God created life, and death is an enemy that reminds us that we live in a cursed world. And so the poem is not meant to comfort us, but to discomfort us. There are 14 pluses and 14 minuses. 14 positive statements, which immediately following are 14 negative statements. Do the math. It all adds up to zero. Each activity cancels out the other. Thanks Siri. Every birth ends in death. Every planted crop is pulled up. Every building is ever eventually condemned. Every celebration gives way to a funeral. And every peace gives way to another war. Nothing is gained in this world. Until we fully realize the futility of all human activity under the sun, we will not appropriately reorientate our lives around the eternal. The gospel is coming, Don't, don't worry, but I don't want to jump the gun and move there too quickly. There is a worldly way of thinking and being that must be shattered in us, church. It is my fervent prayer that before we finish in Ecclesiastes, our trust and hope in this accursed world is mortally wounded. The second sentence in verse 11 is considered by some to be the key verse of the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Ecclesiastes 11b, which is the second sentence. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Again, this begins to sound hopeful. God has put eternity into our hearts. This itself gives all humanity common cause. We know deep down that we were made for something more. There is something deep within each one of us that tells us that what we were created for is some greater enjoyment and greater purpose. And this is why you will never find satisfaction in earthly things or pleasures. There's always something better just out of reach. You know, you build a brand new home, we talk to many people that have built like their dream home, and immediately afterwards they start to think about the things they would have done a little bit different, and maybe if we could just get a few more feet in the dining room, it's all there's there's just always something in us that there's something that could be a little bit better. So we won't find satisfaction in earthly things, but this condition of our hearts points to the eternal reality. We were made for something more. But the final, often ignored phrase of verse 11 is what gives the problem. God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So the final phrase communicates the main idea of verse 11 and how it fits with the futility of life described throughout Ecclesiastes. To have eternity in our hearts is to be filled with a deep-seated desire, a compulsive drive to know the character, composition, and meaning of the world, and to discern its purpose and destiny, yet God has hidden it from us. The Creator will not let the creature be his equal. Ecclesiastes is not satisfied with the idea that there are appropriate times for all activities. The placement of eternity in the hearts of humans leads to frustration. Trapped now between time and eternity, we cannot see the whole picture by God's own design. So that we will fear him and entrust ourselves wholly to him. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, we are invited to let God himself be our wisdom. The fruit of life. Guiding us in the knowledge of good and evil rather than to grasp it for ourselves. And so the purpose of these passages is to stir up your frustration, to expose it so you feel it. What in your life do you wish was eternal? What do you wish you could comprehend? With eternity in our hearts, we perceive and long for better things than this cursed misery. But we cannot see the full picture. And we are forced to lean on God. And so you were made to glorify God, and to enjoy Him forever. And so there should be no surprise that you are frustrated without Him. This is the frustration that the author has been exposing throughout the book. God wants you to be dissatisfied with everything else but fellowship with Him. You will never be satisfied with anything else. As Augustine famously put it, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So we feel like aliens in the world of time and yearn to be a part of eternity. We know that life under the sun is not all there is, thus it is absurd to live as though this life is all there is. So the best part of Ecclesiastes is that even with all these negative statements about life, rather than to merely point towards the afterlife as hope for today, which it really doesn't, it teaches us the wisdom required to enjoy this life as well. This is the beauty of Ecclesiastes. It's going to crush all of our false hopes, point us to the only sure hope, so that, and it never talks about what, how wonderful the afterlife is going to be. It always talks about how to have pleasure in this life. Verse 12 and 13, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So don't don't let this get you way down, let it shatter your illusions, but remember it's telling us how can we enjoy life. So this verse does not mean that we should just forget about our longing for eternity and try to have a good time. That's not why he's introduced the idea of eternity in our hearts so that we can try to shove it out of our minds. It said, with this in mind, with this idea of eternity in our hearts, now enjoy the good things God has gifted you. It is to say that those who have received God's good gift have enjoyment in this life as well as the next. Chapter 2 ended with the promise that God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to the one who pleases Him. Chapter 2, verse 26. And again we have to ask, who receives this gift to enjoy this life in the next? Who pleases God? And the answer from Scripture is that none of us do because we have all sinned. But Jesus Christ is the well-pleasing Son who never sinned but took God's wrath against our sins on the cross so that by grace through faith we might become pleasing and acceptable to god through jesus christ and so only those who believe in jesus that means to entrust ourselves to everything he has spoken can enjoy god's blessings in a rightly ordered way instead of turning his good gifts into idols but the solution to enjoying god's good gifts without turning them into idols is to recognize how great a gift he has given us in eternity Every heavenly blessing in Christ Jesus. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity about eternity being in man's heart and the idea that people can be too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. You know, they just got their head in the clouds. They're always thinking about what's going to happen after this life. But in rebuttal to this idea, he wrote, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next and then he said it is since christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in aim at earth and you will get neither this is what ecclesiastes is saying we are to be heavenly minded eternity is in our heart and if we rightly understand the gift of god this we get earth thrown in as well this life can be good I read this to show that Ecclesiastes includes both such good works and earthly enjoyment as part of the gift of God to be enjoyed here and now as a result of being a heavenly-minded people. Be joyful and do good. That's what it says. Be joyful and do good. This is God's gift to man. Ecclesiastes consistently links the ability to enjoy life in the present with the eternal gift of God. I think it's eight times it talks about the ability to to enjoy this life is to, to know what God has gifted us with and to look at everything that we have and everything we will receive as the good gift of our Heavenly Father. No one can take even the small temporal enjoyments of life for granted. God must permit both the opportunity and an attitude capable of appreciating all these blessings. Even the power to follow his advice is a divine gift. Have you ever prayed, God, help me to take pleasure and enjoy the gifts that you have given me? God, help me to be content, to receive whatever my good Heavenly Father has decided is good for me here and now. When we seek satisfaction in things, money, comfort, success, etc., etc., we are not only destined for disappointment, but we are robbed of the limited pleasures God has graciously gifted to us here and now. It is when we realize that none of the things of this earth are meant to truly satisfy us, and we find our satisfaction in God alone, that then we can actually genuinely enjoy things that aren't perfect. this is outside of my notes and I'm going to hold you for an extra two minutes longer than I was going to but I really had a breakthrough in my marriage some years ago when I recognized that it was a great gift from God that was not the gospel it was not designed to be the ultimate fulfillment of everything in my life and once I realized that God himself was my ultimate joy and satisfaction I love my marriage so much I enjoy it so much it's still not perfect still not heaven close right but, but not quite and, and I enjoy it so much because of a rightly ordered affection And so the section ends with verses 14 and 15 I perceive that whatever God does endures forever nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it God has done it so that people fear before him That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Though everything we toil for in this world is brought to nothing, everything God does has eternal purpose. Nothing can be added to what he has accomplished, it says. Though we are honored to labor with him, according to his plan and purpose nothing can be taken away from what god has planned and nothing can be added to it and so we as believers are invited matthew 6:33 to seek god's kingdom and his righteousness knowing that everything else we need will be graciously granted to us as we are hosted here in god's abundance if you are anxious about this world, if you are anxious about your health, anxious about your money, anxious about your family and your relationships, anxious about your home, meditate on Matthew 6. Meditate on what Jesus tells us we can trust in. That we are being graciously hosted in abundance by our good and heavenly Father who is giving us exactly what we need to be best for us. And this is part of how we can enjoy the limited good things we have now. Good things are to be received as a gift from God rather than sought for in our own wasted toil. The only thing that we do that matters is to build the kingdom of God, something that God has already perfectly established but allows us to take part in. The good life, verse 12, also involves doing good. And so even though Ecclesiastes says that all of what human's toil for is hevel, fleeting, everything we do that is consistent with the doing of the creator will have eternal value. This kind of doing is indeed the only kind that makes sense in a world where the actions of God are utterly decisive, a world where his work is the only work that lasts forever. Only when we do what takes into account what has already been done by God can it have any value whatsoever. To struggle for anything other than harmony with His reality is to act insanely and with the utmost futility. God has already established all of the good works that you and I are called to. Labors that will have lasting effect into eternity. Ephesians 2.10 Prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, right, everything humans do is hevel, temporary, vapor, mist. But whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. And then he says this, verse 15, that which is, what, what we're seeing right now, it's already been done. And that which is about to be, it's already been done. Do you see how Ecclesiastes... Puts God in this place of utmost sovereignty that he firmly holds all of reality in his grasp. And so he already has established everything that will last into eternity. Now you can do a bunch of wasted of time things that will be lost immediately. Or you can do things along with him as he has established good works for you to walk in them. It's already been done. All of the good works that I will ever do, all of the good works that anyone in our church will ever accomplish have already been established by our God. And will last into eternity. That will be meaningful into eternity. This is to have purpose. Plus, times people say, oh, oh, you know, your purpose is to serve Jesus. And you're like, okay, that's great. But when you really understand that this is the way reality is set, and there's one way to do something of value in, and a whole bunch of ways to do things that have no value whatsoever. You are invited, church, to live with purpose. The things that God has already established beforehand that you should walk in. He knows all of your days. He is sovereign over the details and the seasons of your life. He utilizes all of the good and the bad, the joys and the pains together to make something beautiful. Now, not everything that happens will be desirable from a human standpoint. In fact, the Bible tells us it's not desirable from God's standpoint. God doesn't desire your suffering or your pain. Though he somehow will fit every result of human choice into his good plan for us. He controls that which is, already has been, and that which will be. Even what has been driven away, which is is a way of saying that Those things He Himself has driven beyond human ability to control or comprehend. So at the end here, it says, God seeks what has been driven away. Well, who has driven it away? He has. He's driven it from us. But He's got that firmly in His hand. Those things which are beyond our comprehension and beyond our control, God has it firmly in His hand. He has sought those things. And although it is our human limitations which make our ignorance of God's purposes irreparable, full responsibility for our ignorance is taken by god in this chapter he has made us that way he created us this way even before the fall unable to fully comprehend his divine and eternal activity he's the creator we're creation and so there is much to be restored as we are restored in christ jesus but remember we don't become the creator He still is the one who will know all things and hold all things in his hands. We will get to spend eternity seeking to know him more and more, growing, knowing his goodness and his love for us and everything that he's created. So we cannot, it says, discover anything of God's purpose and timing other than what he has graciously revealed. This is why our Bible reading is so important because God has graciously revealed so much of his character and nature and, and what he has called us to. But there's so much we will never know. First Corinthians thirteen nine says we know in part according to what God has spoken but the result is frustration as people experience life they do not fully understand and cannot control. None of us would choose this hey we would all choose to be God. None of us wants to be the creature that it does not get to comprehend everything and does not get to control anything. This is what spawned the rebellion of mankind. We want this control. We want this. But how do we have pleasure in this life? We recognize it's God's control, and that's a good thing. We recognize we're never going to know it all, and that's a good thing. That's by design. That's that's not a bug. That's a design, as they say. God has made it, so we don't get it all. We don't know it all. Ecclesiastes tells us that this is one way that God has chosen to draw people to himself and a life centered on him for their joy. He's chosen to do it this way so that you can take joy in him. And this will ultimately cause some people, believers, to fear him rather than their situation. You fear something. The Bible commands you to fear God. It's because it's directly in relation to the way we fear other things. There's only one option in response. Because reality is so firmly within his grasp, the only rational response is to fear God, issuing in a life centered on God, to acknowledge that he is creator and that we are mere creatures, subject to his every desire. I had a a, a sweating... moment this week as I studied I thought for a second this is reality reality is that God gets exactly what he wants how he wants and he sets our reality everything about my reality is is selected and chosen by God and I had this moment of fear what if he doesn't understand what it's like to be me have you read pets that you killed because you didn't know what they wanted or what they needed now that's just such a, a small view of god that i had go through my mind in just a moment but what a scary thought but our fears are relieved when the love of our good heavenly father has is shown to us in christ jesus our perfect high priest hebrews four fifteen, who it says is able to sympathize with our weaknesses So not only is God in control of all things and so vastly superior and and transcends us, but because the one who is beyond time became man, he empathizes perfectly with you and I. He knows exactly what our situation is. He knows our weakness. And he loves us as a good heavenly father. And so this scary moment needs to be turned into a fear, not of the situation, but a fear of God. And that's what it means to fear God. If you're a little bit afraid of that situation, you're probably starting to get what it means to fear God. As we come to a close, let's briefly review the key themes. This has been a long message. First of all, wise timing is critical. It sure helps. But because we humans cannot fully understand even the timing of our own lives, never mind God's timing, true wisdom is to entrust ourselves to His gracious plan as He hosts us in fatherly love and generosity. So wisdom's good, but true wisdom is to just trust that God knows the way. Secondly, we do not see the full picture, nor were we intended to. Some of us find that very difficult. We were not intended to. We often wait around for God to reveal more of his plan than he even intends to. We must entrust ourselves to his commands, knowing that he alone sees the full picture. This is what it means to fear God and obey him. If God had to tell you every detail of it and convince you and talk you through it, you have not obeyed. You've just made your own choice. So God does not command you, come to a right understanding so that you no longer need to obey me. He says, just obey me. Third, God's work lasts forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing else lasts forever. Other than what God has established, nothing else lasts forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it but we are still invited to partake in the labor for his kingdom, work he has already established. And fourth, humans are gifted by God with a deep, intrinsic desire to move beyond our time-bound nature and be eternal like God, knowing what's up, knowing the end from the beginning, but this is designed by God to cause us to fear him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your word would sink deep into our hearts, that our ears would be open, that our eyes would be open to what you are speaking to the church. These are truths which your church desperately needs. I desperately need. And even as it becomes something I give intellectual assent to, God, I need you to make this a part of my life, to live in this way, to live as though these words are truth. Lord, as we we even think of this time poem, of all the, the timing of everything you have selected, Lord, may we be humbled before you. Bring us to the comprehension of our smallness and your grandeur and your great love for us. Lord, help us to be comfortable in our own skin, the way you have created us to be. In a world that that rejects everything about what you've created us to be, Lord, help us as believers to to accept those things that are even more offensive. You have made us to obey you. You have made us to glorify you. And thankfully, God, you have made us to enjoy you forever. We are yours. Whether we like it or not, may we find joy and satisfaction. Lord, thank you for the work of Jesus through which we can find ourselves as recipients of your good pleasure and the gift not only of eternal life but the gift of joy and pleasure in this one. Lord, make us a church as you sanctify us, God. Make us a church that enjoys our work as we serve you and not men, enjoys our marriage, despite their imperfections, just enjoys our food even as you command us to here in this passage. Help us to enjoy the little things because we recognize that they're just temporary little things. In Jesus' name I ask for his glory. Amen.